Today we're going to be in Matthew 26. And the last time we spoke about really Christian responsibility in the parable of the talents and the ten virgins and the, um, the sheep and the goats. Uh, it was a really good chapter, a real eye-opening, sobering uh, chapter. And today we're going to see really the last moments, the last accounts of Jesus' life prior to the crucifixion. So I'm going to jump in with verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery or deception and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And this is a good uh, indication of how the world works outside of uh, Christ, you know, outside of the believers. There's deception, trickery, sneakiness. I'm just going to contrast that with John 3:19, which is what Jesus uh, speaks about what happens in the world. And he said, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, Jesus spoke openly, and he calls us, as well as believers, to speak in the light. And if we are doing what God has called us to do, to be upfront about things. But you see the contrast with the world. Hey, don't do it on the Passover, because a lot of people revere him as a prophet. So let's try to do this thing and and do it quietly and get rid of him, finally. So verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Simon the leper. Let's start with whose house it was. The word Simon is a Greek transliteration from the Hebrew of Simeon. Simeon was a name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in any particular village, you could have Jewish boys with this name. And it's not like we have with the last names. So he had to be distinguished from the rest of the Simeons or the Simons. So he's called Simon. Matthew is distinguishing him as Simon the leper. Now, this is interesting because the law said that if you were a leper, you had to be quarantined from society because of the contagion issue. So the fact that there was so many gathered at this house leads us to believe that he was healed and probably he was healed by Jesus. Now, this is amazing because leprosy in the Bible doesn't mean that everyone who had leprosy was in a grievous sin, but leprosy was a type or a picture of sin. And I don't, Matthew did it, you know, innocuously trying to distinguish him. But it's interesting that even we as believers... Uh, Years could go by, and maybe somebody knows us from the old neighborhood, and they still may have associations about us that are not real anymore. 
um, Jesus, or the Bible says that we are seen as a new creature in Christ. And that's the beautiful thing of what God does. Even when we or others look at us and we have uh, ideas about what we used to be, I, you know, I lived many years before I was a believer, a believer. I don't want to know if somebody came from my past and said, you were the, you know. But, but the cool thing is that God doesn't see that. Because Jesus at the cross cleansed me from that past reputation. Just wanted to say that. In John's gospel, he tells us two more things. He tells us the woman's name. He felt it was important to tell us her name was Mary. And two, that Judas was the prominent one protesting this so-called waste of the fragrant oil. It also tells us that he was the treasurer and he would steal money. So Jesus would have the money bag, and you could say he was the treasurer of the group, and at times he would take from the money bag and give to himself. So he had nefarious motives here, no doubt. Now, last Sunday, we spoke about the parable of the talents. Remember? We all have some type of talent as a play on words there. But this woman, maybe this flask of expensive oil was all she had to her name. Maybe it was an inheritance. Maybe it was her retirement. Maybe she just was hanging on to it in case something went wrong in her life and she had to sell it. I've heard that some have said that it could have been anywhere between two and $4,000, depending on what was in that that flask. But what it showed was that she trusted the Lord with all that she had. She, see, we can, not only did she um, have the financial issue there that she wasted it, so to speak, uh, on the Lord, uh, on other people's opinion of that, but two, she also anointed him for his burial. Now that was odd because when somebody died, the custom was you didn't anoint them beforehand. How do you know when someone's going to die? You don't know. You can't go around anointing people thinking that they're going to die soon. So the anointing process would come after death. However, in this case, she anoints Jesus prior to his death. This gives us an indication that she knew that he would rise from the dead. Maybe not fully understanding what was going to happen when he rose or how long it would take, but she figured it would be useless to anoint him afterwards. So what we find is this woman had feet on her faith, so to speak. And, you know, there may be times that we boast. We we see that Peter boasts. We'll read about that later, about how much he loved the Lord and his faith and all that. But there will be times that our our faith will be tested. And this woman's faith was tested, and she passed the test. So understand that with our faith will come at times a testing process, and not only for others to see, but for ourselves to see what we're made of. And in Peter's case, he messed up. But he, he got right back into it, relied on the Holy Spirit, and he became a pillar of the early church. So that's a success story. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas is an interesting character, and we don't hear about him that much in the scripture, so I do want to make a few points based on his life, what he did, his infamous, uh, infamously betrayal of, of the Lord, uh, and make some par- parallels and maybe even things that we can see in our own lives, tendencies, etc. Why, why did Judas do it? Well, number one, it was prophesied. Whether it was Zechariah 11 or Psalm 41, many years beforehand, It was prophesied that he would do this thing. 
And this is interesting because this is where that great nexus between God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, and man's responsibility or man's free will come into place. And they, they kind of aligned really neat right here. Now, in the one sense, we know that we are elected according to God's foreknowledge. The Bible tells us that. God knows what choice we're going to make. He knew what choice Judas was going to make. But does that absolve Judas of his personal responsibility? No. We can't say, the devil made me do it. Because God has given us that free will. And personal responsibility is the first point I want to touch on when it comes to Judas. Because especially in our society, when you look around and you read the news, it's nobody's fault. We could kill somebody, this person could be a serial killer, uh, whatever the case may be, you know, extortion, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Personal responsibility. It's in the Bible. And it's something that we also has to have to take note of as well. Maybe we're not Judas, but we still have personal responsibility in our actions and our choices. Now, if we look at the Mary incident with the whole oil, um, Judas was concerned that it was a waste of money and should have been given to the poor. And again, we know his motives were bad. We can speculate and say maybe Judas's concern was that Jesus wasn't moving quick enough. Maybe Judas, when he started with the group, uh, saw Jesus as the Messiah, he saw the miracles, and he wanted him to be this conquering Messiah. And maybe Judas, with this position of holding, and I'm speculating here, holding the money, maybe he thought that if Jesus really rose to power, that he would bring him along with him. He could be a lieutenant, or he could be a treasurer, or he could be an overseer over some of those cities. But Jesus wasn't moving fast enough. After three, three and a half years, and then he wastes this oil, where it could have, been, it could have gone back into the treasury. So we try to understand what Judas is doing here. But Judas, the second point I want to bring up is he had his own agenda, agendas. You see, the Bible tells us in Luke 22 that Satan entered him, but he was a willing vessel for Satan to enter him. He had his own agenda. Now, I will say this, that Satan will even test you and I. He will. You know what the word says. You've read the word. You see the applications. We know how we're supposed to live our lives, how we're supposed to honor the Lord in our marriages, with our children, at work, honesty. But sometimes we have our own agenda. And it's a little bit different from the Lord's agenda. And that's what gets us in trouble. I would say this to myself as well. Be careful of pet agendas. There are even some that come into church with the wrong reasons. They have an agenda. And when that agenda isn't met, they leave. Because that's their whole, their whole uh, motive and idea. Our only agenda should be based on what the Lord says in his word. What Judah said, number three, seemed spiritual. Hey, the poor. And that's a, that's a, it hits a nerve, even in our society, even on the political scene. The poor, the poor. You know what? Put your money where your mouth is, literally. You see some of these politicians, and they're talking about the poor. Oh, we have to help the poor. And then it comes out sometime later in their financial dealings or their tax uh, returns that maybe less than 1% is even given to the poor. Some of them are living in the lap of luxury as millionaires off the dole of the backs of the people. And what do they actually give to the poor? You see what I'm saying? So, um, and, and I would say that, and that's why the Bible speaks about us being generous as believers. We need to be different from them. There was a man, um, A. Brooks, he was not a believer, and he wrote a book, Who Cares, or something like that, in America. And he did this study about who really gives. And what he found was that uh, usually lower-income conservative Christians give the most. And it's disproportionate to those who have the money. 
You see? All the ones screaming about the poor. When he did this study, it caused a lot of ripples in his own community. They were, they were bothered by his study. But it was a good buzzword. We even know that when the false prophet comes in our future, you know, the Antichrist, the false prophet, that it says that he looked like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He had all the accoutrements and the appearances of, of somebody who was a spiritual man, but his words were against what God was saying. He tried to take the place of God. He looked like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. Fourth point, seemed like a good cause. Causes. Even as believers, we, you know, we all have a cause or something that we're interested in. But it would be a shame if that cause now starts to take elevation over what the word says. There was a book written by K.P. Yohannan, an Indian missionary. Uh, it's called Revolution in World Missions. Love the book. And he, he gives a call to Americans. And he said, you know, years ago, Americans would send a lot of missionaries to India. And they would help out financially. He goes, but what I'm seeing is less of the gospel is being preached in India and a lot more money is given. He said this, don't go to India and give my people all this wealth and send them to hell a little wealthier. He said, bring the gospel with you. That's what really matters, right? Sometimes we get up, caused up or get up you know, into these social issues or the social gospel. Uh, but what happens is it becomes topsy-turvy. You see, we become... Instead of being in prayer and, and giving out the gospel and letting the Lord change lives, that what happens is we say, well, it's not happening fast enough, so we're going to do it. So be careful about the causes. The fifth point, Jesus was sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in Exodus 21, that was at the price of a slave. Interesting. What did Jesus say about being a servant or a slave? He said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. Now, this is interesting because Jesus died for the sins of Judas. Do you realize that? Now, when we get into the end of Judas's life, we're going to talk a little bit more about where he was at uh, in, his, in his will or his spirituality. But Jesus died for Judas's sins. Now, if Jesus died for the one who could betray him and send him to the cross, then anyone here is covered under that blood. You know, I meet people at times that say, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and maybe I don't want to know. But the bottom line is the Lord died for our sins. Every sin that we could have ever committed, he knew it from the foundation of the world. And he went to the cross and he took them all with him. And he put them on his body and he bled and he died for our sins. So he came to serve and not to be served. In John 13, it was interesting because the night before, or the night of his betrayal, he had the, the Passover meal with them. He instituted communion or the Lord's Supper. And then he, you know, maybe they're expecting some incredible sermon that Jesus was going to preach. And you probably could have heard a pin drop when he filled up the basin with water. He put the towel and girded it along his waist. He bent down on his hands and knees and he started washing the feet of the disciples. And they didn't get that. They didn't understand the concept of servant leadership. Leadership, servanthood. Leadership, servanthood. Jesus, we don't get this. And even Peter said, you can't wash my feet. This is, this is a job for, for servants. And Jesus was like, exactly. Now you're starting to get it. So Jesus was sold for, the, for 30 pieces of silver. The savior of the world, 30 lousy shekels. But we know that he came to serve mankind and dying for our sins. 
Verse 17. Now, on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And we hear it was the, uh, in another gospel, it was the upper room. Now let's understand this, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. The Passover really came first. It was partaken of on, the, I believe, the 14th of Nisan. Not Nisan Maxima, but the month of Nisan, the Jewish month. And then it went for seven more days, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I believe, until the 22nd. So this was one of the big feasts that everyone crowded into Jerusalem for to celebrate. So it was definitely a a bustling city with this activity. Now, in Mark 14, we hear that it's a specific man carrying a pitcher of water that Jesus sends them to. And there's a little bit of maybe vagueness or mystery regarding this. This man, and they're supposed to go into the city, and when they see a guy with a pitcher of water, they say, hey, the Lord says that we have to eat the Passover here. Why the vagueness and mystery? It's quite possible that this was the time, remember, that the plan was to take him, arrest him, and crucify him before the feast. But Jesus was not going to allow that to happen until he ate the Passover with his disciples and instituted communion henceforth. That was very important for him to do. When the time was right, he allowed it to be known. He sent Judas out, and then they uh, arrested him and took him. Very uh, intricate. I mean, very complex, but very simple. Verse 20. Now, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Then he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now, what I have to do here is bring all the gospels into account. Because you really see the full picture there. What you didn't see here is Peter from the other end of the table motioning, who is it? You didn't see the part about John leaning on Jesus' bosom. Uh, So when you take all the Gospels together, you see this full picture. All the blanks are filled in. So I'm going to kind of go through some of this. Now, I do have an issue with um, Da Vinci's Last Supper. (laughs) Uh, There's not a lot of truth in there. Uh, What I see on the table in his Last Supper is a straight table. They're sitting at it. There's fish and Italian rolls, traditional, right? Traditional Italian Christmas Eve dinner. Not re- it's really anachronistic. It's not really reflective of what happened. They ate the Passover. So they would have been unleavened bread, not beautiful, full Italian rolls. I mean, he might as well have had, when they had the picture of the Last Supper and there's a window behind him, he might as well have had uh, gondolas going by in Venice, you know what I'm saying? And Peter at the other end of the table going, who's going to betray you? I'll break his thumbs. (laughs) This is Jerusalem, not Brooklyn. (laughs) I can say that because I'm Italian. (laughs) But this is a good example of how sometimes cultural biases mess with God's word. 
Now, you know, there's a lot of ethnic Jesuses as well. And I love the fact that Jesus is so multicultural. I love the fact that when he died for the sins of the world, it was like a beacon of light in the middle of the world, and it shone everywhere. Every continent, every people group, every language, every color, right? Amen. Amen. So that's the transcendency of the gospel. But sometimes with our cultural biases, we limit ourselves, and I think was the case with uh, Leonardo da Vinci. But let's move on. So this is what we have. And, and I'll try to act it out a little bit. A triclinium or a triclinium was a table or was three separate couches. So let's say where I'm standing here is one of them. It would be like a um, um, rectangle. It would be like a cushion on it. And three or four people could recline on that. And then there would be one on another side. Let's say out here jutting out would be the same thing. And one over here. And in the center, they would have these short tables. And the servants would bring the food out. Okay, so there would be food on the table. And what you would do is you would recline. I, to me, I looked at some pictures, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> I really go all out for this stuff. Um, I think it's uncomfortable. I don't know how you'd have a really good eating experience, but I've never tried it. But the way I've watched it is you kind of recline like this, and you're, you're on the side, and you, know, you would be talking to the next guy and, or the people behind you, and you'd kind of lean on your left side, and you could partake of the food and have a discussion. Remember, this is hard, but their couches were more cushioned. So you could see how to Jesus' right would be John, the apostle. And it says that John, when he went to speak to to Jesus, leaned on his bosom. So you could see John kind of leaning back, and that would make sense. And Judas saying, is it I, Rabbi? He probably was was reclining to Jesus' left, and and Jesus just heard the words. And he said, the one who dips with me in the dish. So he would be right there. And you can see Peter on the other end over there, um, pretty much motioning to Jesus, who is it? Who, who did it? Because he's not close to him. It is quite possible that Peter had a lesson of humility after John 13, and he didn't jump to sit on Jesus' left or right side. He went to the further part as in a position of humility, and he kind of got it at that point. So he's motioning to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus probably speaks softly to Judas and says, you know, you know it's you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it is you. And I don't know if Judas was testing him, but I like to kind of go through the motions of how this might have happened. And Jesus may have said to him, whatever you do, go do it quickly. And then Judas leaves in the dark of night and goes to betray him. And it's, it's probably said softly so that other disciples don't hear it and give Judas a blanket party. You know what I'm saying? So Judas goes out and does his thing. A few more points about Judas. Here's a guy who, he saw the miracles. When you read the scripture and how the disciples are grouped together, there is understanding that uh, Judas may have partaken in some of those miracles. Maybe used the name of the Lord to do those miracles. Remember Matthew 7, not everyone who calls me Lord, not everyone who does things in my name do I know. I never knew you. It is quite possible that Judas um, had some camaraderie with the guys. Maybe he started off well. But something went horribly wrong. Maybe it was an issue of pride. He didn't get what he wanted. Remember agendas. Right? And, and that's pretty scary. And I think it's a good lesson for us as well to be careful of letting pride set in. Especially in the setting of church or ministry. We're all here on the same team to serve the same Lord. When we start um, kicking and pushing each other and having our own agendas, then the church starts to fracture. And that's not good. The sixth point, 
If you're doing effective ministry, Satan will raise up a Judas. If you're not doing anything for the Lord, or if this church, there's some churches that never get attacked, there's nothing happening there because they're not really bringing people into the kingdom. However, if effective ministry is done, Satan will try his best to raise up a Judas. And it's so subtle. Remember how he spoke to Eve. Did God really say Eve? He starts to have a conversation with her. And he doesn't say, God's a jerk. God's mean. He does it very subtly. And that's what he'll do sometimes with believers. He'll, he'll whisper subtle things to them to get them to go on their own way and to have their own agenda. The seventh point, in God's timing, he will remove them. And the eighth point. A Judas is often somebody who's very close to you. And what happens is Satan will try to use those that are the closest to you so that he can tear your heart out or do the best he can uh, trying to do that. Now, understand this, that when we have relationships, and relationships are the most dear thing to us, but the really neat thing is God is the author of relationships. So any love that we share between uh, parents and children or siblings or husband and wife or, you know, that stuff was initially authored by God. Sometimes we take relationships here and we put them ahead of God. And sometimes we will be challenged and we'll be at a crossroads. We can't follow this path anymore. We either have to go to the right or to the left. And to the right is maybe cutting something off, maybe an unedifying relationship because God has called us to something greater because he says that's not good for you anymore. Or we go to the left where we say, you know what, God, maybe not this time. This relationship, I need this person. This is too important to me. Be careful of those. Because I will tell you right now that if you put any relationship over God, you have no business being in ministry. And that's for sure. Verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now today we are partaking of communion. I didn't plan it this way, it just is where it fell, but it's kind of neat. So we're going to get to... Uh, explain what it is about the Lord's Supper or communion, and then we're going to partake of it at the end of service. And let's look at some of these parallels, really, between Passover and communion. Number one, Passover is a look back. God delivered his people from physical slavery and bondage. Communion is a look forward. All right, starting with the Lord, Jesus, delivering his people from their sins, from spiritual slavery, which is more important. Two, a lamb was used in the Passover and his blood was shed to put on the doorpost and the lintel so that the firstborn wouldn't be taken by that 10th plague. Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? The, uh, John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By his blood, the shedding of his blood, there is truly remission of sins. Their sins are, are, are completely eradicated versus in the Old Testament where they were temporarily covered for it. Three, Passover is a representation of the Old Covenant. 
but communion is representative of the new covenant. And that was, even, that was even prophesied in Jeremiah in the Old Testament of this new covenant that was coming to God's people. So they knew it was coming. It was just a matter of time. But what is communion and what is not communion? Now, I'm going to say what communion isn't first, and that's typical traditional Jesus rabbinical style. So I'll say what it isn't first, and then I'll talk about what it is. What isn't it? There's a practice, practiced by different denominations, called transubstantiation, where supposedly the priest takes a piece of bread and says, literally, it becomes Jesus' literally flesh, and then you partake of it. Okay? What he also does is he takes the juice or the wine and he um, supposedly transforms it and it becomes Jesus' blood, and we literally drink it. That's not scriptural. Now, I'm going to show you where it comes from, and then I'm going to tell you why Jesus says that that's not the case. John 6, 51, if you would turn to me, turn with me. Jesus is preaching, and in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus often spoke in parables, which meant that he used an illustration to make a point. Some of these illustrations were very poignant, very thought-provoking. And if you were passing by, you would stop in your tracks. And as we go on, we'll hear about some of the things that he says. 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, if you've never heard this before, it might come off a little disturbing. But so were some of the disciples disturbed until Jesus finished his, his teaching. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever." These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, remember, Jesus had, could have been upwards of over 100. We know at one point he sent out 72 by two. It wasn't just the 12. He had many followers. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Now, this is crucial. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. This is the problem when scriptures are taken out of context. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Leviticus 17.10 says that the drinking of blood is forbidden and those who practice it will be cut off. They will be, they will be killed. So would Jesus tell us to do something that God said not to do? Of course not. He's not speaking about literal drinking of blood. In verse 29, when we go back to Matthew's gospel, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. So he gave them to drink. They drank. He didn't give them his blood to drink. He drank of the fruit of the vine. Now, 
What is he saying? So now we know what he's not saying. You see, we go to the cafeteria, we go to a restaurant, it's family-style eating. You could be sitting next to somebody you don't even know. Pass the mashed potatoes, pass the peas. You know, you go out to Lancaster, and that's very common. <laughs> right? In those days, eating was a very intimate act. So, and it was different. We use utensils. They use their hands. Right? The bread was used for a lot of things. One of them was a napkin. You know, to dip in the... Uh, so the, what they would do is they would have these loaves of bread and they would break them. And by the time the last person got part of that loaf, everybody's hands were on that bread. Now, to some of you, it's like, that's repulsive. <laughs> but in that culture, eating was a very close form of communion. So let's go out of New Jersey, out of the year 2011, let's go back. Let's go to Jerusalem. It's a different culture. So that was one of the closest things that Jesus could do to illustrate the fact of the closeness. I am the bread of life. See, when we feed on the bread of life, just like the manna came down from heaven to the Jews, when we have the bread of life, when we partake of Jesus, when we have a relationship with him, that's the only thing. As bread sustains us uh, physically so we don't die from hunger, the bread of life, Jesus, sustains us spiritually. So when we partake of him and have that relationship, that is the only thing that keeps us from dying spiritually. We don't starve to death. Okay? The second point is, without the shedding of his blood, which the cup and the wine was a picture of, we can't be forgiven of our sins. All the way back in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17.11, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So what was Jesus going to do different from God? Nothing. He stayed in the same vein because the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. They don't change ideas, right? So the, the shedding of that blood on the cross was the only thing that can save us from our sins. And in Luke's gospel, it said that he took the cup after supper. Now, if you know anything about the Passover Seder, this probably was that third cup of wine, which was the cup of redemption that was drank after the meal. Really powerful stuff. If you ever see a Jewish believer do the Seder and speak about how Christ is in that Passover to blow you away. So that third cup after the meal was that cup of redemption. God says, I will redeem you in Exodus uh, chapter 6. And he was instituting something after they were done eating the Passover meal. Now, communion is what? Number one, it's a time to assemble together with our brothers and sisters. This is why I encourage fellowship. If you go outside and you go to the info table, you'll see... What's going on? For some reason, October, there's a million things going on. You go to something like that, it's a smaller event, smaller venue, you get to meet people, you make friends, right? Communion. We are each other's brothers and sisters. We're going to spend eternity with each other. I know for some of you that's frightening. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it would be a good thing for us to get to know each other now, right? And I say that about God. Some people want to get to heaven, but don't want to get to know God now. That's kind of weird. So we want to get to his heaven when we die, but we've never spent any time getting to know him here. That makes absolutely no sense. That's why we preach here relationship and not religion. Right? And for many, the light bulb goes off there. So assembling together, it's a corporate time of reflection of what the provisions that God did for his people back then or what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's also looking forward to Jesus coming in his kingdom. Now, this is a... Sometimes a sore, a sore point. What does this mean? Many people don't even know what the kingdom age is. There's two problems with this. Number one is ignorance, and I don't say it in a mean way. And two is disbelief. Ignorance, let's start with that. 
There are plenty of organizations that are Christian that don't speak at all about the afterlife. They don't speak about the Lord coming back in glory. They don't speak about his millennial reign on the earth and ruling from Jerusalem in a righteous way. Right? There's ignorance. For some reason, they don't preach it. And the reason is because it's not fashionable to preach about it. Especially in some countries like communist countries, there's a state church. And they'll let you talk anything you want about God, but don't speak about him conquering the nations, especially them. Don't speak about a resurrected Jesus. Don't speak about the kingdom age. It's coming here because Christians are made to feel silly if they believe that Jesus is actually going to come back. So the first one is ignorance. The second one is disbelief. And sometimes it's willful because I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want people at work to think I'm a kook. Let me tell you something. I know Jesus is going to come back. If I died today, I would be with him. If for whatever reason he lets me stay a few more years and he comes back before then, I'm still going to be with him. And he's going to establish his kingdom. So we need to believe with that. We can't pick and choose what we want to believe about the Bible because we might be uh, made fun of. In the beginning, we prayed about those believers who were literally dying just because they want to be Christians. And here, what's a little ribbing once in a while from your coworkers? If we act and we behave like we're supposed to, they'll see the difference. And, and maybe if they tease on the outside, on the inside, they'll see something different about us. Now, in John's Gospel we see a few events that I just want to touch on because um, he, he gives a lot more detail about what happened after the dinner. So I'm going to go through it briefly because we're going to cover John probably half a year later after we do some other books. But number one, Christ washing the disciples' feet. Uh, two, and I just want to read a few verses out of this. John 13, starting with verse 31. Christ announces his departure and what we're supposed to do in the meantime. Starting with verse 31. It says, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you. This is what you need to do while I'm in my absence. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I always was taught that if Jesus repeats something, especially three times, it's something to pay attention to. We live in a very close community, and uh, we worship in a close community in Jamesburg. If somebody comes in, and this happens all the time, they come into the church and they check us out. If we're fighting and we're cliquish and we don't like each other, do you think that they're ever going to come back? Of course not. They will probably say to them, themselves, if they can't get along with each other and can't love each other, then how are they going to love me? So it's very important that Jesus said that, especially in the context and the framework of the church on the earth, to love one another. Now, that's difficult sometimes, because we all have our own personalities, our own willfulness, and we're all sinners. But it's something that we're commanded to do. In John 14 and 15, two of the most powerful teachings in the Bible about remaining in Christ and about our relationship with him. And lastly, in John 16 and 17, the person of the Holy Spirit and all that he has to offer to us, which sometimes we don't take full advantage of because we don't understand the person of the Holy Spirit. So those are, those are coming in the, in the John study. 
Let's go back to Matthew, verse 30. We're going to leave off here. We're going to go through the last few verses in this block. And then next Sunday, we're going to take the second part of the chapter. Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah 13. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, surely I say to you, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, you think he could stop here? No, this is Peter. He said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. They, they leave the meal, uh, c- communion is instituted, and they go out and they sing hymns, right? Shout out for hymns. But we were... <laughs> Psalm 113 through 118 are really the Hallel uh, praises or the the Hallel hymns. And Hallel just means praises. So they're uh, psalms about God's goodness, his character, his deliverance. And they're really nice uh, psalms to meditate upon. Pastor Paul's doing um, psalms on Wednesday night. Um, That's going to be really great when he gets to that part. But Psalm 136 was specifically sung at Passover, traditionally. It still is. So Peter... Peter's being bold, and we know the end of the story that Peter does deny him three times, as the Lord has said. But Peter says, if all the other disciples leave you, I won't. I will never deny you. You see a little bit of, maybe in his attitude, there was some pride there. Maybe he elevated himself above the other disciples. You know, Jesus often took James, John, and Peter. I don't think it's because he loved the other ones any less. I have my reasons for that. But Peter basically says, you know, that these guys could all deny you. I'm going to be with you to the end. And Jesus reveals something about himself. You see, that's the beauty of God. When, we, when we're in prayer, even, I know when I'm in prayer, sometimes I pray something that I really want, and I think my motives are good, and God re- reveals things to me about myself. When we read the word, when we pray, we need that. It's like um, a mirror. When you get up in the morning, Before you go out to see everybody, you got to fix your hair, brush your teeth, all that stuff. Well, this is a spiritual mirror. When we're in prayer and we really are listening and not just talking, God will reveal things about ourselves that aren't right. And Jesus reveals that about Peter. Peter argues with him. Jesus lets it go. But in a few hours, we see what happens. But let's look at this as we close. Number one, Judas's failure. He sinned against the Lord. He sold out the Lord for a few bucks and his self-centered agenda. Peter's failure, his overconfidence, and his pride may be an attitude that he was better than the other disciples, at least for that moment. But it's always good. I mean, we always like to point fingers at the, at the villains or the, the mistakes that are made by those that we read in Scripture. But we failed as well. Because if we didn't, Jesus wouldn't have to die for our sins. We failed, starting from your pastor to everyone in this room. We betrayed him at times. We have, even as believers, sold him out for self-centered agendas. And and he counted on us. How many times has the Lord counted on us and we said we were going to do something and we didn't fall through? We didn't fulfill it. We've been overconfident at times, prideful. And then we went to deliver. We were unreliable. 
You know, even when we promise to do something in the, in the course of ministry-related things, it's not an affront to the pastor or even to the people in the church. We're making a promise to the Lord. I'll be there, Lord. When it comes to an evangelistic outreach, I, I put my name on the list. I'll be there. We fall short. But even if we did everything right in church, we're still sinners. And that's a, that's a betrayal of him. So even if uh, Judas didn't do it, he would still have to go to the cross. All I can say is in the end is thank God. When all others fail, when I fail you, and you fail me, and you fail each other, that Christ is always there to be reliable. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.